Welcome to episode number 78 of 100 Plus, an overview of 100 of the most important people, events, and ideas of the last 2,000 years. This is a survey of the forces and factors that have shaped today's world, Western civilization, the Christian faith, and you. This series of 100 lectures is based on the idea that if we back up to the intersection between the Greeks and the Romans with the Jews and the Christians, and then trace the development of this new group as it unfolds through the Roman Empire, Middle Ages, Renaissance, Reformation, Enlightenment, post-enlightenment, modernity, and post-modernity, we not only gain a better understanding of the past, we also gain greater clarity about the present, all of which will allow us to better understand what living faithfully for Jesus looks like today. In this lecture, I will be providing an overview of the movement known as modernity. Well, welcome back, and uh, a special welcome to the two percenters. You know who you are, and increasingly, you are identifying yourself to me. Um, I am uh, I am now occasionally uh, greeted by somebody who uh, says, hey, are you, um, are you Mike Woodruff? And when that happens, you know, at, at different stages in my life, that has meant different things. Uh, when you're a dad or when you're a parent, people come up to you and say, yeah, you know, you're, you're a son and uh, my daughter are in the same second grade class or you're, I coach your kid in this, this uh, sport, whatever. Uh, a lot of times it was people that were attending the church Especially uh, as it's multi-site, uh, there's people that I have never seen that uh, attend Christ Church, so they know me or think they do. Uh, now, it's most often uh, that it's someone who's going to say, are you Mike Woodruff? And I say, yes. And they're going to go, your wife is the best uh, director of fun ever. So Sherry uh, works as the director of fun at um, Green Oaks Senior uh, Living Center and uh, she is the, yes, so she is the director of fun, and she does a great, great job, and she has many fans. And so often, that's why, if I don't know somebody and they say, hey, are you Mike Wonderful? I go, yeah. Go, Your wife is amazing. Uh, but increasingly, I'm having people come up to me and say, hey, I just want you to know, uh, I'm on episode number 48, or I'm on episode number 72, or I'm staying current with you on this, um, this journey. So um, that's fun. Um, as you have heard, we are moving our way through this 100, but incre- <clears throat> increasingly now I'm supplementing uh, these lectures uh, with other podcasts. We'll sort of develop this other podcast track, but um, I am working hard to try and stay uh, current with the schedule, but there's just uh, these topics increasingly are uh, more challenging. So anyway... As we move into this new podcast series, if you have questions, we are toying around with the idea of having a mailbag at the very end of the podcast in which uh, I answer questions that you have sent in. So if you have questions about any of the episodes to date, you can email me uh, at mwoodruff at christchurchil.org. So M-W-O-D-R-U-F-F at christchurchil for Illinois.org. Org. Okay, well, um, so I am imagining that you have noticed that there is a lot of confusion and anger out there. Uh, some of the confusion and anger is caused by just crazy thinking. 
uh, by bad ideas, by internally inconsistent worldviews, uh, by people who say that both A and not A are true at the same time. Uh, we just have got a lot of, uh, we've got a lot, a lot of nonsense going on. People violating the law of non-contradiction, people now saying that democracy is a bad thing or the freedom of speech is a bad thing. Um, there are a variety of reasons for this. There are a variety of reasons we've got here. Uh, some of the confusion and, um, and fear is caused by the epistemic <clears throat> shift that we are moving through. And um, the ground is moving beneath us. Some of the confusion is caused um, by people using words to mean uh, different things. So there's just a lot of non-communication going on. Um, and, and that is immediately germane to our topic today. Now, some of the, some of the confusion um, over words is, I believe, increasingly, I think it's intentional. Um, if you read George Orwell, you know, uh, 1984, or his essay on political speech, you know that uh, the whole idea of, you know, doublethink and ministry of truth and ministry of peace, which, which are just exactly the opposite of what they're claiming to be. You know that there is propaganda reasons why that people will change the meaning of words and then insist upon the new meaning. Um, <clears throat> I think that uh, there's a lot of that that's going on. There's also confusion because words change meaning over time. Uh, I have protested the, the word liberal because a classic liberal believes in, um, you know, freedom of speech and rule of law and limited government and, you know, free market. And often those people are conservatives by today's uh, standards. The word liberal also means somebody who occupies a more progressive political philosophy, which means that they all are often um, just on the opposite side of what a classic liberal is. Sometimes a modern liberal is a classic liberal. It's just, it's a very confusing uh, word. As is, by the way, the word literal. Um, you know, I used to be asked, do you, do you read the Bible literally? Like, or maybe it was usually said, you don't read the Bible literally, do you? And I used to say, well, of course. How else do you read it? Uh, now I don't say that. Um, for the same reason, now I say, Someone says, do you, you read the Bible literally? I say, well, that depends. Do you have a literal definition of the word literal or not? Because the literal definition of literal, which is not the common definition of literal, means uh, it's, it's, it's a part of literature, a, a literati. And so you're going to interpret the, the literature, you're going to interpret the word in the context to get its meaning. So you understand if the language is poetic, and you interpret it literally, you're interpreting it poetically. But that's not the way people mean it today. Although sometimes people will say, uh, literally, you know, uh, he weighed 8,000 pounds. Well, no, no, literally he didn't, but whatever. It's very confusing. So there's a lot of confusion. The word for today is modernism. And modernism is a very uh, confusing word. Um, for starters, the word modern means like contemporary, you know, the immediate. It's, it's right now. But the first challenge we have is that, uh, of course, what is modern today is going to be dated tomorrow. 
Um, this past week, I was uh, suddenly there was a picture of me from my high school homecoming, uh, and it was on the web. Uh, and I was getting pinged by people, and it was the homecoming dance, and I was there with uh, with my date and with uh, good friends, uh, Steve Darby and his date, now his wife of some 35, 40 years. And uh, this picture went out on the web, and everybody was, and I, of course, was dressed very modernly by 1978 standards with a three-piece suit and an open collar, the lapels of which, uh, on a breezy day, I might have been able to take flight. And I had long hair, and so, you know, people were making fun of me until I said, until I finally figured out, the reason this picture was posted is because my date um, had passed away. She um, got MS and she had passed away. I didn't know this. We did not stay in touch uh, once or twice over the last 40 years. So I did not know uh, much about her life, but she had passed away. So somebody was just posting lots of pictures of her and I was in this one. Uh, But what was modern Okay, 1978, is not modern in 2022. So the word has uh, that challenge to it. It also, the word has a certain um, freight to it. It invokes this idea uh, that modern is good, that modern is better. If you say that something is modern, uh, you're implying that it's not old and old is bad. Okay, that whole mindset is actually part of modernity. Modernity, and by the way, the term was also used to describe, you know, you've got modern art and modern architecture, and these are very specific things. They're not, you know, if somebody did something today, it wouldn't be called necessarily modern architecture. That was sort of a late 19th, early 20th century style. But there was this intellectual movement Um, called modernity that flows out of, um, and and here it's also challenging, this this term is challenging because it flows out of uh, a lot of different things depending upon who you're listening to. Some will take the concept of modernity all the way back uh, to Gutenberg and the printing press. Others go back to Descartes, the, the French uh, enlightenment thinker, you know, cogito ergo sum, I think, therefore I am. That that, that was a, one of the earliest modern kinds of ideas, and it sort of launched this modern uh, thinking. Others will take modernism uh, and modernity back more just to the late 19th century uh, and trace it through the, the mid-20th century. So, um, it's, again, this term is... Uh, challenging to define. Because some people will just say, I mean, we've been going through this whole phase, right? We've been going through this whole uh, unfolding chronology of uh, the Bible and, 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 and to some extent Western civil, although we didn't back up far enough to pick up the Greeks and the Hebrews in this first pass through these hundred. But uh, we've looked at the Romans uh, the Roman Empire, and then into the Middle Ages, starting with the Dark Ages or the Early Middle Ages, and then the Middle Middle Ages, or then the High Middle Ages or the Late Middle Ages, and then we moved into um, then we moved into the Renaissance and uh, the Reformation and the Enlightenment. And some would say that modernity starts sort of after the Enlightenment. 
Others would back up and say that modernity sort of includes the Renaissance and the Reformation and these different tracks. Um, look, um, part, of, part of the challenge here in a, in, a, in a discussion of modernity is that a lot of different people mean a lot of different things. Part of the challenge of a discussion of modernity is that we're now moving into uh, a milieu in which we are currently swimming. So now we're starting to need to uh, understand our own world and our own environment. Now, we live, by most people's understanding, in a more postmodern era. But that's complicated. First of all, postmodernity is even even less well-defined than modernity. I was on a uh, panel 20 years ago at InterVarsity Press, and there were three of us, and we were supposed to be talking about postmodernity, and I just started by saying, look, I'm not even sure I know what postmodernity is. I know that it's after modernity, uh, but people are defining this term in such radically different ways these days. If you go back and you read the, you know, the initial postmodern writers, you know, Derrida and Foucault and others, then first of all, that's challenging because I think they're almost impossible to understand. They don't always agree with each other. And then you've got now, I think we're in sort of a second wave of postmodernity. The, the recent stuff I've been reading on postmodernity is very much uh, taken a hard turn. Uh, we've moved out of this, you know, sort of anybody can believe anything into more of a cancel culture in which if you, you, um, you know, anybody can define truth their own way. It's all sort of intuitive. But at the same time, uh, if you don't affirm these things, you're on the wrong side of history and you're going to be canceled. So post-modernity is complicated. So I don't want to say that we're living during modernity because we've moved on, but the more, the, the later Western civilization goes, the more it just pulls everything with it. So you still have got people who are much more in a traditional mindset. You've got people who are very much in a modern mindset. You've got people that are in a postmodern mindset. And part of the reason we've got all this noise and confusion and, and tension and, and anger is we're in the middle of a knowledge crisis, which is, I, I'm not going to go down that path in this podcast because that's actually what the whole fall sermon series, at least the first half of the fall sermon series is. How do you know? And I'm looking at the whole epistemic shift because we're looking at this idea that the Bible, of course, is how at the end of the day, we sort of know what we know. God has revealed things to us and we can trust these things, which doesn't mean that we can't use reason and tradition, and intuition, and other things, but we have been given uh, a gift from God. So, uh, so I, we're in an epistemic crisis. We're in a cultural crisis because we've got all these different views going on out there. All that to say, part of the challenge of talking about modernity is that uh, we, you, and I, hold on to some very modern ideas, and we don't even recognize that they're ideas and that they're contrary to the ideas that people might have had 200 years ago. I'm about uh, to get a new iPhone. 
My iPhone is uh, circling the drain. I can't get it to answer phone calls. I can't get Siri to give me the time of day. I can't get it. Sometimes I can't turn it on or I can't turn it off. It's, it's very much sort of, um, yeah, and, they, and I take you to the Genius Bar. They look at it, and, you know, they bring each other over, and they go, look at this. You know, we heard, we read about these, uh, this version in, in the history books. So I'm getting a new iPhone. Well, today, we believe that newer is better, right? So I'm getting a new iPhone. That's an upgrade. That's good. Technology is always changing. We're getting access to more power. There was a time when new was thought to be bad. You didn't want new. You wanted tested. You wanted established. You wanted proven over time. You don't want these newfangled gadgets and these new uh, ideas, those were bad, they were corrupting. So, so modernism carries with it an idea, that, again, it evokes this idea, uh, among other things, that uh, new is good. And, um, and so we are, um, we're aware that there are people like the Amish uh, who, who are skeptical of um, of new. So the Amish, you know, I mean, the Amish don't go with cars yet. I mean, famously, they ride buggies. Uh, they don't own cars. They'll ride in cars, I think. Depends upon the Amish. But they, uh, they don't know where this leads. So they don't understand the full ramifications <clears throat> uh, of certain technologies. And until they have looked at it for a long time and decided okay, yes, all of that is good, uh, they're, they're hesitant. So cars, uh, one, of the, one of the future podcasts that is um, on the horizon is the sexual revolution. I mean, one of the things, one of the reasons for the sexual revolution, one of the things that, that was a catalyst for the sexual revolution were cars. Uh, before there were cars, everybody lived closer together. Uh, and, you know, young men and young women didn't spend a lot of time alone in a car or in the backseat of a car away from their parents or other people. It's, obviously, there's a whole lot more to the sexual revolution than that, but it's just to say that technology fuels things. We don't always understand where it's going to go, and there are people who are skeptical of this, such as the Amish. So, um, so we're looking at modernity, and it is this intellectual movement. I am going to say, for our purposes, although some go back to Gutenberg, I'm going to say we're particularly interested in the mindset the, that grows out of the late 19th uh, and into the, the middle of the 20th century. And, um, and for the most part, we're, we've moved on we have late modern ideas, or we perhaps have postmodern ideas, but there's still a lot of modernism that is fueling today, uh, especially as it relates to, you know, sort of enlightenment thinking around science, and we appreciate all the technology and all the medical breakthroughs uh, that we have had. So, um, so I think that I have uh, sufficiently um, lollygagged my way through this. So... Um, Here's my, here's my written uh, work here. For our purposes, we're talking about the late 19th and early 20th century that rejected tradition, 
uh, including all things religious. Uh, this is the view that is going to push Enlightenment thinking further away from medievalism and Christianity, and uh, it is also going to embrace the goodness of humanity, which if you listen to the interview I did with uh, McKinsey, uh, the Wheaton professor on um, We the Fallen People, you know that, that the founders of this country uh, and the first six presidents before Andrew Jackson had this sort of traditional Orthodox Christian understanding that people have great value but are uh, deeply fallen. Loved by God, great value, made in God's image, important, but broken. And so we're skeptical of humans and sort of the human disposition. Um, when we get into modernity, when we get through the Enlightenment, which dethrones God, man is now the measure of all things, we start to have these utopian, idealistic views of people. People are good. The problem is we just lack information. With a little bit more time, a little bit more education, science and technology is going to lift us out of the problems we have. We're all going to hold hands. We're going to sing Kumbaya. We're going to get along. Everybody's going to share. This is John Lennon. Imagine, right? This is, this is, that's the view that we have with, uh, modernity. So, um, so it, it pushes down tradition, the old, uh, religion, you know, all that stuff is, it's not true. And there's no, there's no value to it. So there's no universal moral truths because we're moving now entirely into a material world. But it's going to be disjointed and there's going to be, uh, again, inconsistencies here, which we're going to hear a lot of when we get on the other side of modernity and we get the, the, the postmodern critiques of modernity. But I'm going to actually share some of the, the critiques of this way of thinking that grow out of Christians at the time um, most notably C.S. Lewis. Um, but modernity, as we're looking at it, 19th and 20th century, uh, this is the idea, pushes down tradition, pushes down religion, it embraces the goodness of humanity, and it believes a lot in science and technology and progress. In the modern world, newer is better. And um, so you want to get on the side of the new you want to be on the right side of history. Um, so we are thinking now um, about modernism. And uh, by the way, I wrote down quintessential modernist. Like if you just want, you want to have somebody's name in your uh, mental image of who a modernist would be, Henry Ford. Uh, Ford famously not only started the Ford Motor Company and, and was, you know, just one of the champions of the Industrial Revolution and automation, uh, but, but he's leaning into all of these things that will be sort of known as modernism, and he did not like looking backwards. History is bunk, right, is one of Henry Ford's quote, quotations. Like, why look backwards? It's all about tomorrow, and uh, everyone's going to have a car, and it's all going to be great. So, um, one other thing by way of context here. So, we are, we have, we have moved our way through, you know, the Roman Empire and, and then, you know, the Middle Ages and, and the Renaissance, Reformation, Enlightenment. We're moved, we've moved our way into now modernity. And in particular, the last few episodes of this 100 plus have been around some of the 
uh, intellectual movements in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. And so we've been looking at Marxism and Darwinism and existentialism and liberalism and romanticism, um, looked relatively recently at Pentecostalism. Uh, there are more to come. I think one of the next lectures I'm going to give is on secularism. Um, and there's a number of these isms, by the way, that we're not going to look at that we could. Um, if this was 200 plus, we could look at relativism and atheism and anti-Semitism and scientism. And I mean, there's lots of intellectual movements. By the way, science just means knowledge. And one of the things that happens in modernity is that science, it's the Latin word scienta, I don't know Latin, but it means knowledge. Science and the scientific method will be exclusively limited to the material world. So the scientific method obviously requires uh, the material world. You've got to be able to run falsifiable experiments. You've got to be able to you know, form your hypothesis and then, and then test it. Um, and that's all good. I'm, I'm a fan of the scientific method, a fan of science, for sure. But part of what happened in that process is that moral knowledge doesn't remain knowledge. It's not objectively true. It's just a value. And you could have a different value. And so the only thing that is true are the things that are scientifically, materially proved. That's one of the, it's one of the vibes of modernism. So um, there are a few things uh, that I want to just share about this, and then I'm going to frame this in the context of uh, the discussion C.S. Lewis has, because um, I think that makes it more interesting. So if you're reading about modernity, one of the things that you will likely run across is the secularization theory. And uh, the secularization theory, which was very much a mainstay of my college education. It was just assumed it was an absolute truth. I'd love to go back <laughs> to a class that I had with Steve Raines, who was disdainful uh, of all things related to faith, especially Christianity. And uh, he would ask me, you know, Michael, what are you going to do? Because, you know, religion is dying out. The more, as education spreads, it's proven People will give up their superstitious nonsense. They'll stop believing in, you know, the boogeyman. They'll stop believing in the tooth fairy. They'll stop believing in, in Jesus. They, they, will, they will go with fact, and uh, religion's going to die out. Well, um, it, it hasn't died out, and the secularization theory that, that said that it was going to has now been uh, repudiated. Uh, Peter Berger, one of the very prominent, very highly respected um, sociologist is one of the first ones to come out and say, look, I'm just not seeing it. You also had, uh, you also had uh, Samuel Huntington, the Harvard uh, political scientist, who in his book, in, uh, I won't have the dates here, but he wrote, he wrote Clash of Civilizations uh, before 9-11, and he, wrote, he actually, I think he wrote it maybe even before the Iran hostage crisis. And one of the things that I, I remember, I, I don't have my sequencing here perhaps, but one of the things I remember is that the CIA really got their, their hand slapped after uh, Iran fell to the Ayatollah and uh, the Muslim revolution there. Because 
But the CIA was paying no attention to religion because in their mindset, religion didn't matter. And uh, Huntington will come out and say, hey, the future wars are not going to be fought between countries. They're going to be fought between ideologies. And in particular, it's going to be the ideology of the West versus radical Islam. Whether he's true or not, it was another critique of the secularization theory. Um, We should note that uh, modernity gets equated in the literature with the rise of nation states, financial exchanges, communication expansion, the Industrial Revolution, uh, and Marxism. Now, when I say rise of nation states, you should note that part of what happens with modernity uh, growing is that you see the decline of um, colonial empires. Uh, Obviously, Great Britain is going to break up. But everybody sort of says, yeah, it's not a good idea for us to have to be a colonial power. And so you see local governments uh, taking over in Africa, Asia, where there had been colonization of those uh, areas. Um, the The demystifying of the world will grow in part out of a slide of religion into deism. Um, not all religion, but uh, there were some Christians coming out of the 18th century that start to move in a liberal de- uh, direction. They give up the revelation of Scripture. They give up a lot of the supernatural. And a, uh, a theist believes in God. A deist believes in God, but only sort of kind of a God who set everything in motion and established physical rules and then is, is moved on. This is... Thomas Jefferson arguably was a deist. And so uh, deists don't, they're not personal. It's not a personal God. It's not a God answering prayer. It's not a God involved in this world in any way. And so deism grows. And and this is part of this whole process of of the world becoming uh, demystified and the world becoming very thin, uh, very unenchanted. Uh, everything's just material, uh, which is going to lead, uh, eventually you're going to get uh, Nietzsche and you're going to get this slide into uh, nihilism and other things. But uh, some of the big knocks that will slow down modernity will be the world wars. Uh, world War One, the Great War, um, is going it, to, it's really going to make it hard to believe that man is good getting better and that uh, science and technology are only there to help us. No, we're making tanks and gas warfare and, you know, and, and bombs, and now we're starting to have you know, planes fly, and we're seeing uh, the weaponization of, of the air. And, so, um, so, and then by the time World War II comes along, and, and you have to remember, I mean, when you're reading, as, as I was doing this week in preparation for this, I mean, some of the people that are, that are going to college after World War I, like Tolkien, like, out of his uh, eighth grade class, I think he was at Eton, uh, like 145 of his friends have been killed in the war. And, uh, y- you know, and, and you go to college and, you know, half of the people that were planning on going have been killed. And then you get into World War II, and again, it's just going to be, I mean, every family is going to have mostly a son at this point who was killed in war. And it's hard to believe. Um, it's hard to believe in God, and so there's a, a, a lot that is hard to believe in God, hard to believe in, in, in good, and so you're going to have uh, modernity, and you're going to have challenges to faith. But 
Uh, I want to talk about that in a second. Let me also note, I, I'm, I've come at this, perhaps to your surprise, a little bit more negatively than you would have expected. We need to recognize the upsides of science and technology. Uh, they're not, there's not only upsides, right? I mean, because we are broken, when we get greater technology, we have greater ability to hurt more people. Um, right? That's one of the challenges of, of uh, technology. But when you go back, you go back a couple hundred years ago, most people were working on a farm. I mean, it took like 70, 80% of the people in the, in, in the United States, in the country, anywhere in the world, I guess, to just grow the food, to keep, keep themselves alive. And we're down to like 1% or 2% now of people that work in, uh, in agriculture. Because technology has allowed us, you know, John Deere uh, and, and uh, irrigation and, and uh, understanding pest control and fertilization, all these things, advances in science, uh, have allowed us to have dramatically higher standard of living. And um, so uh, P.J. O'Rourke, who passed away not long ago, he was a uh, uh, complicated guy, I think. Uh, I think I think he had a lot of demons, but he was a very funny, uh, conservative political writer. And uh, you know, his he sort of uh, lashes back. He says, "I can defeat all the anti-modernists with one word," uh, and that word was dentistry. <laughs> he said, "You want to go back uh, 200 years ago before uh, before we understood about you know things about dentistry before we understood." Uh, uh, you know, fluoride before we had Novocaine, you know, you, you want to go back and live in that world? Um, have at it. Uh, so there's a lot of advantages to the advances in medic, medical science, advances in, from science and technology. Um, so we are seeing that. I don't want to suggest otherwise. Um, but modernity is going to be thin. And that will be, again, the knock of the of the medievalists, of the Christians, again, of, 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 of the people who are writing as, we're, as the world is moving into the modern era and they see the changes that are taking place. And it's going to be the critique of postmodernists. Um, there's a lot of people. So I, when I preached some prayer this past weekend, I mentioned that looking through my files over the last 40 years, I had a lot of articles uh, that we're arguing for the validity of prayer because the world was much more modern 20 years ago, much more uh, sort of dry, sterilely rationalistic. And so prayer was not, you know, what are you going to... We've, we've come through 20, 25 years of people increasingly being spiritual, not Christian, spiritual, but not religious, but understanding that there's a mystical, magical, enchanted nature to the world, or at the very least, not being willing to suggest that the world is thin and that, that materialism alone is going to explain things. And so, um, so you have uh, criticisms coming from the, the postmodernists who who think, uh, you know, that the world of the boomers is just too much work, too much about money, too much that's just thin. And you also have some of these same critiques of people 
uh, as modernism uh, was getting started. So um, what I thought I'd do is just share a little bit about C.S. Lewis and his take on all this, because um, to just talk theory is maybe a little uh, a little dry. And um, so I ran across, and I shared this in the Friday update uh, a couple weeks ago maybe, uh, I have been running across these these articles, these lectures, uh, various ways. I've been hearing about C.S. Lewis, uh, the medievalist. So um, uh, Spencer Clavin, who I, I, I don't, I know very little about. Apparently, he's a um, works for the Claremont Institute, which I know something about. But I think the Claremont Institute is changing in the last six months, and so I don't. I, that's not my world to keep track of, uh, but I'm always nervous. I'm going to mention somebody's name who's going to get me in trouble. I don't know enough about Spencer Clavin to say much, but uh, his dad, Andrew Clavin, is a novelist, uh, spy stories, and uh, somewhat famously had been a liberal, graduated from Berkeley, and then became uh, under Reagan, became a conservative, and became a Christian. I think at like you know 50, he has a conversion um, to Christ. And so I, I know a little bit about Andrew Clavin. His son Spencer has a, has a PhD from Oxford in classics. And, uh, and he, uh, there's this lecture, and I was just sort of spot listening to some of these uh, podcasts, and he's got this lecture on, um, in, in, in his list called uh, uh, The Greatest Intellectual in the 20th Century. And I don't know who it's going to be, uh, I've gone all the way back to the beginning of his podcast. I think he's got, you know, 300 or whatever. But I'm, I'm particularly interested because as, as we redo this 100 plus, I want to spend a lot more time on the, the Roman and Greek era, of which he now, this guy has a PhD, so I'm starting to try and get smart on all of that stuff. And so I'm, I plug in to just listen because I'm sort of curious, like, Who's he going to say is the greatest intellectual of the 20th century? I mean, obviously, it's a completely subjective statement. Uh, but I'm just sort of curious. Who's he going to say that is? And I'm rehearsing in my mind, you know, who he might come up with. And to my shock, it's C.S. Lewis. And he says not because of his work as a kid's, you know, kid's storyteller. I mean, obviously, that doesn't make him the greatest intellectual of the 20th century. And it's not uh, his work as a Christian apologist. It's he's he should be most famous for, and I'm I'm like most famous for what? He should be most famous as a medieval scholar critiquing modernity. So Lewis's professional life, he was a you know he was a medievalist, so he was a Middle Ages literature guy, and uh, and so by some thinking, you just basically, you've got Christianity or traditionalism, you've got uh, the Middle Ages, <laughs> and then you've got modernism and postmodernism. And so Lewis is in the Middle Ages, and, and part of his whole conversion is actually uh, his critique of modernity and Tolkien, so J.R.R. Tolkien, who wrote... Um, Lord of the Rings, Tolkien leading him to faith by arguing that he's looking at the modern world which he's rebelling against. Lewis is rebelling against it because it's a movement away from 
the Christendom out of which these stories, he's a, he's a medieval uh, literature guy, and the world of the, the enchanted world where there is right and wrong and nobility and valor and honor. And, 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 and Lewis embraces this world. He, he, doesn't, he doesn't believe in God. I mean, he's, he's born into a family that's, you know, nominally Christian. He's, he has this traumatic experience in which his mom dies. His father is a complete uh, failure as a father. It's horrible. Uh, some of what happens. Lewis almost dies in World War I. And uh, as he's convalescing, by the way, I, I, well, the reason I'm so, part of the reason I'm so down on Lewis's dad is I just can't imagine this, but Lewis is convalescing. Uh, from almost dying, he was left on the battlefield in World War I, almost dies in the battle. He is in a hospital that's like 30 miles from London. And his dad doesn't come to visit him. And, and, and Lewis writes these letters begging his father to come, and he doesn't come. And I'm thinking, your, your, your 20-year-old son is wounded in, in this battle trying to protect, you know, trying to, to defend uh, Western civilization. He's in a hospital that's 30 miles away, and you're too busy at work? He's a government employee. He's, he's a solicitor. He's, he's some sort of attorney doing something. You're too busy at work for months to go visit your son. And Lewis will say that his father, if he, I think he says something like, if ever there was a man who had less joy uh, out of life, I, would, I, I can't imagine. So Lewis does not have nice things to say about his father. He, he's shipped off to school. He becomes um, an atheist under the great knock. You can read about all this in Surprised by Joy. But, but um, then he's a professor. He's starting to teach at Oxford, and he's, he teaches philosophy for a little bit, and then he's teaching literature, and he, he sort of, bumps into Tolkien, who is also professor at Oxford. Tolkien is a philologist, that is, he teaches uh, languages, and he's an ancient language guy. And they discover that they've got all this overlap. But Tolkien will argue with Lewis and say, you know, Jack is, C.S. Lewis's name is Clive Staples, so if your first name is Clive, I guess you go by Jack. Uh, say, Jack, you, you love this world. And it's based on a, a myth that is true. All these stories and this worldview that has been crafted here and all the things that you like about right and wrong and, and, and valor and courage and all these things that you are drawn to, you're drawn to because they're true. And the true myth, it's real. He's not suggesting it didn't happen. He's saying the true legend that sets all this up is Jesus. And it will take some time for Lewis, years for Lewis to be persuaded of this, but he will eventually become a theist and then eventually become a, a Christian. And there's a number of these people at this time, they don't all become Christians, but they, they are all standing sort of on the precipice of coming out of this world, and they're looking ahead at modernity with its, its, its against tradition it's very materialistic. It's all about science. It's all about progress. And they will see it as being remarkably thin. 
And they will also see this idea that humans are good, and they'll say, no, it's not. And a number of them um, will, will have some experience in World War I or World War II, uh, and they'll be so traumatized by sort of the industrial war, the industrial, military, depersonal battle uh, that is so different than, you know, the knights of old, uh, that they will just they will rebel. And they'll all write. They're all writers. So uh, C.S. Lewis, who, you know, left for, the battle, left for dead on the battle of World War I. Uh, Tolkien, same thing. He gets trench fever and almost dies. Takes him months to recover. Uh, you also have uh, World War II. You've got Kurt Vonnegut, who will write uh, Slaughterhouse-Five. So, so Lewis will write the Chronicles of Narnia, the epic battle of good versus evil, a battle against modernity. Uh, Tolkien will write Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit, in which is um, a battle uh, of good versus evil and against, uh, against modernity, right? It's this enchanted world with elves and dwarfs and, and, and all these things. Vonnegut will write Slaughterhouse-Five because none of these guys can actually write sort of objective nonfiction about what they saw. So he'll write Slaughterhouse-Five, which is, if you've read it, I mean, it's a fascinating book. It's too hard for me to describe. Uh, you've got Lord of the Flies written by William Golding. He gets shot in the neck, uh, but survives. Uh, you've got, uh, uh, I think Orwell is in there, but you've got a number of these people who will all write, and they're, <clears throat> they're critiquing this utopian fantasy. Science and technology is going to fix all of these things. So um, Lewis um, will come to faith, and, and he, will, he will sort of stand against uh, modernity, and he will, um, he will become, of course, uh, a great um, sort of, he will fight in World War I, sort of defending his people. He, there's a sense in which he fights in World War II against the despair. He becomes the voice on the BBC radio, giving these addresses, uh, which will become mere Christianity, and he's arguing... Um, for theism, and he's arguing for God, and he's arguing for hope, and he's arguing all these things. Some people think of him as being very Pollyannish. They do not understand Lewis at all. He's seen the worst, but he's arguing for hope, and he's arguing for the Christian worldview. And uh, later on, he will give some lectures. And, and the, probably the two biggest works of criticism of modernity that you get from Lewis, the first would be The Abolition of Man, uh, which were, were three lectures that he gave initially before it became a book, three lectures uh, in the University of Durham, and, uh, and, and he argues, uh, he's got that great line, and I put it in, uh, I put it in last Friday's uh, Friday update. Uh, we make men without chests and expected them virtue and enterprise. We laugh at honor and are shocked to find traitors in our midst. We castrate and then bid the geldings be fruitful. Uh, a gelding being a castrated male animal, I, usually a horse, I think, but anyway, so he argues that modernity is saying the only thing that's real is the material. There is nothing else. And, uh, but then calls on people to be just, calls on people to be valorous, calls on people to be courageous, calls on people to be sacrificial for other people. And Nietzsche will say this as well, like, why? It doesn't make any sense. And Lewis will say, you know, we, we say to people, there is none of this. 
Right? There's, the world is not enchanted. There's no God. There's no good and evil. There's none of this stuff is true. And then we will expect them to be, uh, to be just. We will, we make men without chests and expect of them virtue and enterprise. We laugh at honor and are shocked to find traitors in our midst. We castrate and then bid the gelding be fruitful. Um, so that's sort of the negative critique of modernity. Then he will, in The Weight of Glory, which is a sermon and also a book, um, he, will, um, he will come at this and argue that the weight of glory, the enchantment, the, the holiness of God, the goodness of God, the goodness that we know intuitively, right? The, the, these moral truths are true, even though we cannot map them out uh, using the scientific method. So he'll, this is when he's going to write about the, um, the Tao. He's going to look at all the sort of the universal truths through all the different religions and, you know, honor your parents and don't kill in cold blood and these things. And he'll say, look, you know these things are true, but you cannot establish them using reason alone. You just can't. You're going to have to make a jump up and say, yes, if you think these things are true, then all these things follow. But you've got to have, and this is just what we know from logic. I mean, logic only backs up so far. You've got to have some axioms that you just say, this is just true. It's just real. Uh, you got to start here. And, uh, and Lewis will say, we do this in the material world. We do, we should do this in the moral world as well. And so, uh, weight of glory will be his critique. Um, and uh, it, it will be a positive critique arguing against modernity for something else. So um, that, is, uh, that is it for modernity. I think um, uh, we have in the 100 plus series, we've got um, secularism coming up. I think is it liberation theology, sexual revolution, uh, a number of things.